Well, good morning, College Park. How are we all doing? Good? Ready to dive into God's Word together? Before we do that, I just want to say a special thank you to Joe and to Brad for extending the kind invitation to me to be a part of your all's church family this weekend and the Thank Conference. I experienced tons of generous hospitality and loved getting to interact with many of you and and, uh, share in the fellowship and the teaching together. So thank you for that. And also, I just want to say, if I can put it this way, thank you for being you as a church, as a congregation. Very grateful to God for you as a church and a congregation, for what you stand for, for how you are in this world. I, 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 I'm, I get more weepy now that I'm getting older. And a part of the tenderness is uh, I have family that attend here. My mother and father-in-law and brother-in-law and sister-in-law who I love very much. and uh, I know how much they love you as a church family, which means I love you as a church family. <laughs> So thank you for being you as a congregation, and, and may you continue in the good work that God has for you in this community in Indianapolis. And I think of what Paul says about the church in Colossae, that your reputation extends beyond Carmel in the northern suburbs of Indianapolis. We, we know about you all up in Chicago. We're grateful for the work of this church and and your lives and, and ministries. So, so thank you. It is a joy. It is a delight to be here this morning. Let me invite you to grab a Bible, would you, and turn it to, turn in your Bible to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. We've already had the text of Scripture read for us this morning. We read it together, excuse me, in our, in our worship earlier in the service. But I invite you to have your Bible open to Galatians chapter 2. I am very excited to continue on. I'm seeing this morning's message not as a one-off, but really as an extension and continuation of the Think Conference from this weekend. I, I recognize that some of you were not here this weekend, but this is going to be a kind of continuation of the purpose, as I'll talk about in just a moment, and the theme of this weekend's Think Conference. And then I'm going to introduce a third element, <clears throat> excuse me, element into that mix in this morning's message, excited to speak to you this morning on the theme of the cruciform Christian. The cruciform Christian. Cruciform, is that a word that's familiar to some of you? It's not a word we often use, cruciform. It may be a new word to some of you, but I suspect it won't be a new concept, and I know for most of you it is not a new reality. That is to say, cruciformity. Cruciformity is already a part of your life as a follower of Jesus, whether you call it that or not. I'm using the word cruciform to describe the shape of our lives as we follow Jesus in this world. As you follow Jesus as a faithful follower of the risen Christ, what form, what shape does your life take? What does your life look like? Answer, according to the Bible, 
cruciform. Your life in this fallen world will take on the shape of the crucified Christ. Your life will be cross-shaped. Your arms will be extended to the world like Christ's in sacrificial service and embrace of the world. That's what I mean by cruciformity. And we read about it in Galatians chapter 2, that well-known passage to many of us. And so take a look there in your Bible and in Galatians chapter 2. I want to direct your attention just to one verse, the sort of central verse in this passage, excuse me, verse 20, where we see the Apostle Paul talking about his own calling in life. What did Paul's life look like he, as he ran around the Mediterranean world evangelizing and preaching the gospel and getting run out of town and stoned and harassed and persecuted and, and 39 lashes? What shape did Paul's life take in service of Jesus? Well, he tells us. Verse 20, and what does he say there? I have been crucified with Christ. And so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I don't know about you, but I think our temptation is to hear those verses and get a little abstract and spiritual with them. And to think when Paul talks about crucified with Christ, he's talking about some mental thing he does, like Jesus and I are pretty close in my prayer time. But listen, brothers and sisters, being crucified with Christ is no abstraction or mere spiritual icing on the cake of his life. It is rocks being thrown at him. It is the scars and the wounds on his back from the lashes. It is the sleepless nights. It is the persecution. It is the suffering. And so you may remember, if you turn to the end of the book of Galatians, you find in verse 17 of chapter 6, Paul, in this long theological argument, excuse me, in the book of Galatians, long theological argument where he's going all over the place and Abraham and works of the law and all this kind of stuff and laying out argument after argument after argument to make his case. And then he's got one linchpin argument at the end of the book of Galatians, verse 17 of chapter 6, where he says this, From now on, let none of you all trouble... This is a little Wilson paraphrase, by the way. Let none of you all trouble me anymore. Why? Because I bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus. And if you want proof, take a look. You can see the visible signs of the persecution and the suffering. Paul's saying, I live a crucified life. Back off, agitators and Judaizers. I'm willing to embrace suffering for the sake of the gospel. I'm living a cruciform life. And so cruciformity. You see, literally, conformity to the cross of Christ. For you and I to be conformed to the image, to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus in this life is going to mean our lives will be cross-shaped. 
Cruciformity is what our lives look like when they are wrapped around Jesus' cross. And so this means not just splinters, right? Like haphazard suffering that comes into our lives as part of this fallen world. It means the suffering of self-sacrifice. It means the suffering we willingly embrace when we use our time, our treasure, and our talents to serve other people. That's cruciformity. So Paul talks about it, his cruciform way of life, all over the place, right? But one of the more powerful places is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Don't need to turn there. Let me just read to you how Paul describes his cruciform way of life, which, by the way, is our calling in this life as followers of Jesus. He says this, quote, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Isn't that quite something? (laughs) You wake up this morning... You're a follower of Jesus. Today, the calling is to give over your life for the sake of other people. To be continually given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So here's the punchline for Paul. So death is at work in us but life in you. Crucifixion and resurrection simultaneously. The cross and the spirit simultaneously. That's cruciformity. Sacrificial suffering for the good of others. Again, it may be a new word for some of you, but I suspect, in fact, I'm sure if you're a follower of Jesus, it is not a new concept. Certainly not a new reality, but one you are no doubt intimately acquainted with. The suffering entailed and involved in being a follower of Jesus in this complex and challenging world. But perhaps what you may not be as familiar with is how cruciformity connects with both the purpose and the theme of this weekend's THINK conference. I mentioned that we're seeing this message this morning as a kind of continuation of the THINK conference, not a one-off that stands apart from, but as a continuation of, so here's what I want to do. I want to connect this idea of cruciformity with the purpose and the theme of this weekend's THINK conference. What is the purpose of the THINK conference that's been going these, the, over a decade now? Well, as I understand it, the purpose of the THINK conference is to help Christians, ordinary Christians, think well, <clears throat> excuse me, well about God and the gospel and the Bible and the church and the world and the mission and all the rest of it. To think well. To take seriously, you might say, your calling, our calling, your calling as small t theologians who know God and know the works and the ways and the will of God in the world. That's the purpose of the Think Conference. But then there's the theme of this year, this particular year's Think Conference, and the theme is growing in godliness. 
or the doctrine of sanctification, or, or wrestling with the question, how do Christians begin to look and go on looking more and more like Jesus? Sanctification, progressive sanctification, growing in godliness, growing in Christ-likeness. And here's what I'd like to do then in the remainder of the message this morning is I want to try with a little homiletical jujitsu to bring these three themes together, which normally travel in parallel tracks. Are, are you tracking with me on this? These things normally aren't brought together, suffering and sanctification and thinking. How do we connect these? Is there a, a coherent vision that, that brings these things together so that suffering is not a sideshow to deep Christian reflection? Or worse yet, a distraction from deep Christian reflection? And here's what I want to say. If you don't catch anything else in this morning's message, catch these five words. It's the thesis of the message, a very simple sentence, and it goes like this. Here is the punchline and the takeaway from this morning's message. Your suffering sanctifies your thinking. Your sacrificial service of other people that is costly and painful strengthens, enriches, invigorates, enlivens, yes, your character, but check it out, also your thinking, your reflection, your mind. And so the painful things that we go through in life, the sacrifices we make in Jesus' name for the good of others, they have the potential to deepen our character, but also to develop our minds. Think about that. Your sacrificial suffering helps you not only love God, it helps you know God. Know God. Suffering sanctifies thinking. <clears throat> how so? Like, how does that work? How do these things come together actually in real time? How does sacrificial suffering help you be wiser in the ways of God? Let me suggest four ways in which our suffering sanctifies our thinking. Four ways in which cruciformity will help you blossom as a lay theologian who is wise of the ways of God in this world. Four ways cruciformity helps. And, and the first is this. Cruciformity helps you see. It helps you see. Not with physical eyes, but with the eyes of the mind, the eyes of the heart. Suffering, you see, corrects for a certain kind of nearsightedness. Is anybody nearsighted? I am horribly nearsighted. Without my contacts or glasses, I am desperate and helpless. Cruciformity, what I'm saying is cruciformity gives you lenses you wouldn't otherwise have. As you embrace sacrificial suffering, God works in your life a kind of lenses that corrects for nearsightedness. Again, not of the eyes, but of the mind. 
Or let me put it this way, there is, I'm going to use a big word here, there is hermeneutical value in suffering for the sake of others. Hermeneutical value, what does that mean? It means it makes you a better reader. Analyzer of life. Thinker on the deep things of life and this world and God and the Bible. It helps you see things you otherwise would not see. And you know where this happens most powerfully? In our reading of the Bible. Suffering is the hermeneutical horizon for the Bible. You want to commune with the Lord through, in and through Scripture? Cruciformity is the way to do it. Because it helps you see things in the Bible. See things in Scripture. Maybe a couple of personal examples will help if, if I may share a few personal examples. So I remember in graduate school learning about the persons of division, these, these difficult people that Paul talks about in the pastoral epistles. And, and I remember as an aspiring pastor learning about the pastoral epistles and these people of division. Do you know who I'm talking about in Titus chapter 3 and, and 1 and 2 Timothy? And I remember thinking, gosh, that would be too bad if you bumped into any of those in your church when you're a pastor. <laughs> and then you just kind of move on to try to get to the really important stuff that you think is interesting because it's... Because that stuff's irrelevant to you. You've never encountered any of that sacrificially. So I, I had no idea who these persons of division were other than in an abstract academic sense until, check it out, I bumped into some of these prickly characters in my congregation. And then you see what I'm saying? The hermeneutical horizon of suffering that is now mine, yoked to people with difficult people in my congregation causes the truths of Scripture that were always there to leap off the page, and I'd never seen it before. You know what I'm talking about? Or I never would have caught the force of Paul's charge to Timothy. Do you remember that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 and following? where You remember this Paul says to Timothy, let them not look down on you because of your youth. And I remember thinking so condescendingly in graduate school, I was becoming a pastor, like, poor Timothy. That's never going to happen to me. Anybody, nobody's going to be looking down on my youth, right? This is back when I had more hair, right? Less gray in my beard. I was a youth, but, but I, I, no one's going to look down. I mean, no, give me a break. I mean, I'm not Timothy. No one's going to encourage me that way. Well, I never really would have caught the force of what Paul is saying to Timothy and the grace and the gospel news that it is to Timothy as an encouragement unless I would have, or until I, would have, until I did receive, me and the 1,200 people on our email distribution list as a congregation, a 32-page hostile email missive <clears throat> from a very influential person in our congregation who referred to me as, quote, young Todd no less than 14 times in the letter. That's true. And in that moment of suffering and controversy that flared up in my congregation, I 
can assure you that I went to the encouragement Paul gives to Timothy, and let me tell you, it leapt off the page. I saw it in a way I'd never seen it before. Or I never really would have appreciated the wonderful thing that the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, when God makes humankind in his image, Male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. I never would have really experienced the, the profundity and the beauty and the sweetness of that statement if I hadn't walked alongside a lovely man in our congregation in his mid-60s who for decades has woken up every morning wishing he was a woman. The pain of that, the heartache of that, the conflicting in his soul over that, the seeming intractable personal and pastoral dilemma that that poses. And now walking with this dear faithful brother, with that particular dilemma he's wrestling with, it causes texts of Scripture to leap off the page and to be seen in their full potency and beauty and power. Do you see what I'm saying? You catch what I'm saying? There is a hermeneutical value in suffering. Perhaps this is what Job meant. When at the end of his journey of suffering with God, he can say at the end of the book of Job, chapter 42, check this out. I had heard of you, Job says, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job goes from hearing of God to seeing God through suffering, through suffering. And so suffering has a good hermeneutical effect. It helps us see. And, and I can think, friends, of nothing more important to living the Christian faith in our contemporary context than the ability to see with your mind and with your heart. Cruciformity helps you see. But secondly, cruciformity also helps you sift. It helps you sift. Sift through your priorities. Sift through what really counts. Sift through what really matters. Do you struggle with that? I know I struggle with that. Like, what really counts in the complexity of the world in which I find myself? What really matters? What is the bedrock truth I really need to focus on and move away the clutter? We are all drowning, are we not, in distraction and clutter of one kind or another? Cruciformity, sacrificial suffering for the sake of others, it helps us sift. It helps us separate the wheat of substance from the chaff of nonsense. Well, let me put it this way. Cruciformity, I, I hope you like this. Cruciformity turns us into hedgehogs, not foxes. Hedgehogs, not foxes. I'm drawing on a distinction that 
a philosopher named Isaiah Berlin uses where he talks about, you know, you, know the, you know the old adage, like there are two types of people, right? There's two types of people in the world, there's two types of people. Isaiah Berlin says there's two types of people, there's two types of thinkers. Two different ways of, of using your noggin to engage the world. There are what he calls hedgehogs and there are foxes. Foxes, according to Isaiah Berlin, listen to this, quote, pursue many ends often unrelated and even contradictory, connected, if at all, only in some ad hoc way. Like they're running around all over the place. Their mind is scatterbatter, right? If you want to know what this looks like, like like turn on cable news, right? And it's just a scatterbatter so often. Actually, until something really scary is happening in American culture, and then everybody's mind gets really focused, by the way. So those are foxes. If they were a bullet, they'd be Buckshot or really birdshot scatter, not a slug. Those are foxes. Hedgehogs, on the other hand, Isaiah Berlin says, quote, listen to this, relate everything to a single central vision. A single universal organizing principle in terms of which alone all that they are and say has significance. What a description of a Christian. A God-centered, gospel-suffused lover of Jesus who can relate everything in his or her life to the centrality of Christ. A hedgehog, Isaiah Berlin says. Hedgehogs, you see, are the opposite of intellectual ADHD, right? They have a singular vision that is like the Apostle Paul's. If you want to read the Apostle Paul, you will come to the conclusion, if you ask this question, what kind of thinker is the Apostle Paul? He's a hedgehog, not a fox. And I want to suggest that cruciformity turns you into hedgehogs, not foxes, or moves you, transmogrifies you from being a fox running around in a million different directions with your mind to being a hedgehog who is driven and guided by a singular vision of life and the gospel and God and the truth. Because as I think we all know, There's nothing like suffering for others to help to focus the mind. Listen, when you're going through a time of suffering, it's very hard to get excited about silly distractions. Is that right? Very hard indeed. And so cruciformity helps you see, and then as it helps you see, it helps you sift and sort, you might say, what it is, That you're seeing what really matters, what is really important, what is really essential. And again, it seems to me there's hardly a more important skill for a Christian in this complex world than to be able to sift, to separate the wheat of eternal truth from the chaff of fleeting opinion, to lay hold of the big picture, the most important things in life, to, to not lose the forest from the trees, as it were. And so cruciformity, it helps you see, it helps you sift. Are you still with me this morning? 
You know what else cruciformity does? Cruciformity cultivates virtue. It, thirdly, it cultivates virtue. Not just the moral virtues, which I think is familiar to us. We get that suffering cultivates moral virtue, but it cultivates, check it out, intellectual virtues. Listen, faithful Christian living in this world requires serious Christian reflection. If you are going to be a faithful presence as individuals and as a congregation in this increasingly post-Christian, post-modern, highly secularizing culture where the complexities are myriad, if you're going to maintain a faithfulness as a follower of Jesus and as a congregation, it will require serious Christian reflection. You can't live a faithful Christian life on intellectual autopilot. Asleep at the wheel intellectually. And so the kind of serious reflection Christians are called to do in light of our contemporary challenges depends upon well-cultivated habits of mind. Habits of mind, right? Virtues in the mind that are conducive to doing that kind of heavy lifting intellectually in terms of reflection and theologizing about life conducive to serious and substantive reflection. These habits of mind that, that are called intellectual virtues. Of course, I've already said no one's going to deny that Cruciformity or suffering does much to shape our character, to, to cultivate moral virtues in our lives, but so too, I want to say, cruciformity cultivates intellectual virtues. And what are those? Things like wisdom. Anybody need wisdom? Moms and dads, you need wisdom in this crazy world? The intellectual virtue of wisdom, being able to see and sift and sort and apply God's truth to the complexities of this life is cultivated through sacrificial suffering. The intellectual virtue of wisdom and prudence and discernment and the love of truth where your heart is drawn, your mind is drawn to truth, you love truth and firmness as an intellectual virtue. Not flabby and wishy-washy on the truth, but there's a kind of intellectual firmness about your grasp of the truth and the intellectual virtue of generosity. There's a capaciousness about the way you engage with other people. That's an intellectual virtue. It is cultivated through cruciformity. At the same time, here's the fun thing, cruciformity has a way of also purging from our lives things like folly, intellectual vices, things like folly, gullibility, dishonesty, obtuseness, naivete, superficiality. Hard to be superficial when you are in the throes of sacrificial suffering. And so cruciformity drives those vices from your life. And if you want to see what these vices look like, then just surf the internet or check out Twitter. 
lots of intellectual vices and not a ton of intellectual virtues. Why is it that we find ourselves so polarized as a country? Someone wait, someone tell me to back off. I'm going to get, I'm going to go on a side thing here, right? No. (laughs) Reel it in, Wilson, reel it in. Stay with your message. Why, why are we so polarized as a country, y'all? See, I can't resist it. Why are we so polarized as a country? I mean, there's lots of reasons. There's lots of sociological reasons and cultural reasons and all the rest of it. One of the reasons we are awash in intellectual vices. We're superficial. We like generosity. We like wisdom. We're dishonest. We're gullible. We don't show forth the fruit of the Spirit and the virtues of the mind, the mind of Christ. Maybe this is what Paul had in mind in that famous passage in Romans chapter 12. You know the passage. Where in view of the mercies of God, let us offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing. God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed anymore to the pattern of this world. Which, by the way, am I going to get myself in trouble this morning? If you imbibe tons and tons and tons of Twitter and stuff and cable news, you will be conformed to the pattern of this world. The entire, okay, don't overstate it, Wilson. Be good. (laughs) The genre and discourse of so much of that is worldly. Maybe not in content, but in the way it is delivered and carried on. Where it is not taking people seriously, but caricaturizing and misconstruing, uncharitable. You can't drink a ton of that and not have it cultivate intellectual vice rather than virtue. And so Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I wonder if he has in mind intellectual virtues. Suffering, brothers and sisters, refines your character, yes, but it also refines your thinking, and it does it through the cultivation of virtues. One last point this morning in the message, one last point I want to mention of how Cruciformity sanctifies thinking, and it does it in this way. Cruciformity drives us back again and again to the greatest of all theological, intellectual, and reflective endeavors. And what is that greatest of all intellectual, theological, and reflective endeavors? Answer, prayer. Prayer. The year was 1963, and the world's most famous and influential theologian, Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, arrived on the shores of North America for the first time to go to Princeton Seminary and then to the University of Chicago and give a series of lectures on theology, the work of theology. Those lectures are now brought together in a volume entitled Evangelical Theology and Introduction. And in that volume, Bart takes up the theme of, listen to this, theological work, which is what was happening this weekend at the Think Conference, theological work, 
Theological work. He takes up this theme of theological work as the fourth and final theme that he addresses. And check it out. He identifies the work of prayer as the chief theological task. And his reason for this is really simple. Listen to this. Coming from the world's most famous theologian at the time. Quote, he says this, quote, all theological work can be undertaken and accomplished only amid great distress which assails it on all sides. What is he saying? You want to do great theological work? The necessary condition is cruciformity. That is where the most profound, deep insights into God's will, God's way, and God's works in this world will happen. And so he insists, quote, the first and basic act of theological work is prayer. He's, of course, talking to professional theologians and and aspiring theologians, but I think it's relevant to all types of Christians, what it is he's saying. Because suffering reminds us that, well, God is God and we're not God. And suffering disabuses us of the, of the idea that we can live independently of God. And suffering drives us back again and again, particularly with sacrificial suffering for the good of others, it drives us back again and again to that, that radical childlike dependence upon God that is so conducive of the posture of prayer. You cry out, Abba, Father, when you are in the wilderness of affliction. And so cruciformity, friends, you see, it it sanctifies our thinking. Suffering, sanctification, and thinking. How do these come together? Cruciformity sanctifies our thinking. It helps us see. It helps us sift. It helps us cultivate intellectual virtues which we so desperately need, and it causes us to pray unceasingly which is indeed the source of all of our greatest insights into the will and the ways of God. And so let me close by sharing with you one of my favorite quotes from one of the most quotable characters in all of church history, the father of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther. And what makes Luther so quotable is because Luther is so given to overstatement. And so it's just fun to quote Luther, but you got to buckle in. Can you buckle in with me for a second here? We're going to hear from Luther. you got to buckle in, put on a helmet. Here comes Martin Luther on what makes a theologian. Check this out. Quote, living, even dying and being damned, make a theologian. Not understanding, reading, or speculating. I love sharing this quote when I go speak to seminary students, by the way. Always gets their attention. But I think the same can be said of Christians in general about you and me. What makes a theologian, what makes someone who is wise in the ways of God in this world, living, even dying, and being damned? That is to say, when you modulate off of his hyperbole to the way we would say it, that is to say, suffering for Christ in the service of others. This is what sanctifies Christian thinking so that you and I, we have the mind of Christ. This is what sanctifies thinking. Not a PhD, not a seminary degree, 
Not reading impressive books, rather conformity to the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for the mind of Christ, our Savior. Would you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, both in our character and in our minds, that we might be a faithful presence in this life, in this world. For the glory of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.